Hello, everyone. I'm TJ. And I'm Aaron. And, and we're, we're the, the OK, OK Petunias. Petunias. And we're doing something a little different this week. So, you know, we didn't remark on it last week, but that last week was our 10th episode. And so we wanted to talk this week about a film that is evocative of the Golden Girls aesthetic and the Golden Girls sensibility, but it's not about the Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. So we're doing 80 for Brady. Yes. Um, which, you know, f- much like the Golden Girls stars four fabulous old broads. So... We definitely wanted to give some time to this movie. And there is a Golden Girls joke in the movie itself. Yeah. There's an actual like, explicit connection exactly. to the actual movie itself, exactly. show itself. So we see the Golden Girls still having an impact. They do. I mean, yeah. pretty much anytime you have four female friends together, it's going to be somewhat evocative of the Golden Girls. Just because they're so foundational mm-hmm. to that model. And I think they may be one of the first times we see four women friendships in one place. But I don't know. We'll have to do some research on that. Anyway. Four. What are you talking about? Like the first time that we have like four, a show centered on a group of four women. Oh, the Golden Girls being the first one? Yeah. I believe so. I think that's been talked about. At least I've been assuming that. Yeah. So anyway, so what is this movie about? Uh, it's about four old ladies. It is about four old ladies. Done and done. <laughs> See you, you like next week, folks. <laughs> no, it's about a group of four older women who are truly dedicated football fans. And particularly fans of the Patriots. The Patriots, yes. And I'm sorry, I, of, I had to. I, I had to hesitate before I could say that. <laughs> particularly of ugh, Tom Brady. I mean, if you're going to be a fan of the Patriots, you might as well be a fan of Tom I Brady. I guess he's just not a particularly great person in real life. But anyway, so they, you know, are trying to get to see him at this huge. It's a Super Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to get tickets to go see him. And so it's all about their adventures they encounter as they make their way mm-hmm. toward what they think is the Super Bowl. Exactly, it's the grab that do episode of the Golden Girls. <laughs> exactly. Um, there's no. <laughs> snooty hotel receptionist unfortunately <laughs> but it works nevertheless so to lay out the characters we have lily tomlin whose character is lou who is recovering from cancer we have jane fonda as trish who is you know her best friend we have rita moreno who's who's mora who lives in a retirement home but still has her own house mm-hmm. and then of course we have sally field as betty and they're all absolutely perfectly cast and i think that much like the golden girls which, you know, slotted each of the women into a sort of paradigm or an archetype. Each of these women also has that kind of archetypal mm-hmm. appearance. You know, Lily Tomlin is sort of the sage, I would argue, is sort of the sage one. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane Fonda is the sort of sexy one, of course, because it's Jane Fonda. Come on. Of course. Rita Moreno is the sort of, she also has shades of the, the sage one, but also has the sort of sarcasm. She's also mm-hmm. the oldest one in real yeah, life. Exactly. She's she's the one that I think of is sort of the actual level-headed one right. in this bunch. And then, of course, Sally Field is Betty, who's a sort of mousy mathematician. Mm-hmm. And so it's very fun from the get-go to sort of see the ways in which they fit these roles so perfectly and how they are so perfectly cast. Yes. So let's start with Lily Tomlin, you know, who I think has really nailed a very specific character type. Like, you see it with Frankie and Grace and Frankie. Mm-hmm. Um, you see it in Moving On from, you know, that came out a couple of years ago. She has a real remarkable ability to be both absolutely ridiculous in terms of her mannerisms, because that's, you know, sort of her comedic persona. Mm-hmm. But also she has these moments when she really just can wring the pathos from it an instant. And I think that that takes a really unique talent to be able to do. And I think it's because she's so ridiculous that she actually is able to nail the pathos moments, too. Exactly, because in her comedy... I mean, it's a character that she's been developing for a very, very, very long time. But I love that she's good at doing that sort of kooky, offbeat, older lady. Mm-hmm. 
is that she like she's always going to be the unconventional one to the somewhat more conventional Jane Fonda. That's always how their pairings always go. Um, it's always going to be that way. And so now I'm going to start talking about Jane Fonda a bit because of the many, many pairings these two have had over yeah. the years. What I love in this one is that this version of Jane Fonda is far less straight-laced than, say... Grace from Grace and Frankie another time when we see these two actresses acting off of one another but she is still very much the sort of the conventional like hot older lady yes. like like she's still very much in that vein because I guess if you're going to get Jane Fonda that's probably what you're going to have her do yep and I mean to not to go back to Lily Tomlin but I'm going to go back to Lily Tomlin for a minute like there's the moment when she kind of admits that she doesn't know whether her cancer has come back mm -hmm. and I mean that's just beautifully acted like i because i think that she really captures the like the fear that permeates your life whenever you're sort of waiting for a medical diagnosis but you can't quite bring yourself to make the leap to read the evidence and we'll touch a little more on the cancer storyline later but i just wanted to bring that up as mm -hmm. a key sort of performance moment so rita moreno my god mm -hmm. like the woman is over 90 yep. and yet first of all looks great but also can like has remarkable like mobility like mm -hmm. it's not just that she can still walk but she like seems to have this kind of vivacity that would be enviable in a woman like 20 years younger than her mm -hmm. but it just seems to be so such a dynamic screen presence yes i mean there's there's a reason why she's such a many times over award-winning Mm -hmm. actress she absolutely has command over her performance and that has not diminished right you know over time it's like she's she really could give a class to the world on how to be a performer because everything that she does it's it's so well thought out mm -hmm. it's it's and performed in ways that feel so natural for her character because it really does sort of just radiate off of her mm -hmm. as and anytime i watch radio moreno and anything i always feel that way about her even in that episode of the golden girls right that's sort of the backdoor pilot for a show for her yeah i mean let's i mean we're obviously going to talk about empty nests at some point you know because i know that it is one of the more notorious episodes in the golden girls but as moreno shows in this movie and as she shows i think in that episode she has this remarkable ability, much like Tomlin, to really excavate hidden depths of her character. Mm -hmm. Like, And I mean, admittedly, of the four women, I think we get the least insight into her as a character in some ways. But what we do get is remarkable because Moreno has that sort of intangible thing that we call like star charisma. Mm -hmm. Just because she just it radiates off of her. Yeah. And I mean, it's true in everything I've ever seen her in, whether it's One Day at a Time obviously West Side Story like she's just one of those people who know who just has it the yes. it factor as an actress definitely so finally we come to Sally Field who is both in real life and diegetically the youngest of the four mm -hmm. um, and so and it's, I think if we had to parallel her to like a ro she's definitely the Rose yes. character even though she's obviously sort of like more book smart than yes this yeah, she's smart she's a, a math professor is that what she yeah, is yeah I mean she was at one point she said she went on sabbatical and then just never came back yeah um, but you know in traditional like Sally Field fashion she's kind of a mousy person like but there's also an innate warmth i think to sally field's performance that i really like always respond to and it always makes me sad that my first introduction was mrs doubtfire where she's like the bitchy like, mother figure <laughs> but she's just so wonderful and again she has the same kind she has an it factor too but it's of a very different sort mm -hmm. than the other three like there's just something more subdued about her but you just can't help but love Sally Field. Exactly. She's just so darn nice. 
She is. I mean, that's, if I had to pick one word to describe Sally Field, and it seems like she is that way in real life, too. Mm-hmm. And she's matched in that regard. I, you know, we won't spend too much time on the men in this movie, but it is worth pointing out that Bob Balaban plays her husband. And if anyone can play a mousy, kind of rather diminutive older man, it's Bob Balaban. Mm-hmm. Like, he constantly interrupts her as she's, you know, making her way, trying to do, you know, among other things, engaging in a hot wing contest with Guy Fieri. <laughs> It's Bob Balaban. Like, he's constantly calling to interrupt her to ask for advice on her paper. And she's like, oh, my God, will mm-hmm. you just make a choice already? On his paper. That's, yes, on his paper, because he's so reliant on her. Which, you know, there's an interesting, you know, um, aside, or, you know, it's a, an interesting sort of feminist comment about the way in which women in the Academy are often asked to do, like, the labor for their male colleagues that they shouldn't have to, mm-hmm. and that their male colleagues should be responsible for. Mm-hmm. And are also, you know, wives and husbands doing the same thing right so i think that that's a pretty good layout of the performance so what do we make of the story of the film like because you know the whole premise is that they're all trying to get to the super bowl (laughs) and so it's very you know it's kind of zany and whimsical Mm -hmm. and i really appreciated that yeah i mean it's an excuse plot it's it's silly (laughs) it's silly it's a thin premise there they got to get tickets to go to the super bowl they get the tickets and then they go to the super bowl except they didn't get the tickets. They were counterfeit. They were scammed. Yep. Uh, but then they still try to find some way into the game. You know, it's one of those zany storylines. I mean, it is basically like the episode of a sitcom expanded into an hour and a half. Yes. But I think that that's it. I mean, for me, at least, I like that kind of movie. Like, not every movie has to be some sort of grand statement. Mm-hmm. Not every movie has to be this, you know huge epic sweeping narrative like sometimes it's fun just to watch these four women you know stellar women Mm -hmm. be in the same movie for an hour and a half exactly that's what i loved was an opportunity to watch them just sort of enjoy themselves in this performance so yeah so what were some of your favorite moments in the movie um i'd say for me i think what uh the confrontation with the security guard Yes. Uh, at the stadium or the repeated confrontation with that guy. Probably my favorite thing because, it's, again, it feels very sitcom-y. I know, I know that there's an episode of The Nanny where this exact sort of thing happens. Mm-hmm. It's a very common thing where they're not allowed in somewhere. There's the person whose job it is to make sure they can't get in, so there's going to be that standoff that happens over and over and over again as that episode goes on. It's that same sitcom trope just right. played out here and it's wonderful well i have two favorite parts so one is jane fonda's wigs yes like i mean if you've if you've watched grace and frankie or really anything she's been in in the last 30 years like she's always got the most glorious wigs that i think whoever her wig stylist is deserves all the awards because mm-hmm. they're so perfectly calibrated but here like i feel like jane fonda was like you know what i want to look like dolly parton in this mm-hmm. movie. so like I've ever, many of the wigs are so are so outlandish they look like they belong on Do- a dolly parton character exactly and i love the timing of the wig changes uh-huh. <laughs> because i love that there's there's no pretense and we're not trying to pretend like this is actually her hair it's like nope these are her wigs and that's what we're going with i mean i mean when you're jane fonda you can do whatever you want with your mm-hmm. hair with your wigs and so I also really appreciated, so there's a moment when, you know, they're invited to this party, you know, before the Super Bowl, um, and they, t- to t- sort of loosen up, they take edibles. Yes. Which are apparently highly concentrated edibles. Mm-hmm. So, of course, these are four women who probably have never had edibles before. Or not in a while. Not in a while. And so, obviously, it's not long before Lily Tomlin's Lou starts to get unglued, particularly once it's revealed that 
Sally Fields Betty has misplaced the tickets. Yes, yes. So of course that has all sorts of hijinks. Meanwhile, you know they're searching this party for Guy Fieri. Probably the only time that four women have been seeking Guy Fieri yeah, yeah. in any given context. Uh, and Rita Moreno's more. I just need to recite the name so I don't forget them. Ends up in a very very high stakes poker game, mm-hmm. and of course is blitzed out of her mind. Yes, but yet somehow manages to be extremely skilled. Mm-hmm. And what I love about this movie and the ridiculousness of the plot. So, of course, it's very convenient that this high stakes poker game is going on and Mars is able to infiltrate it because, again, they're stuck trying to find a way into the game after finding out uh, that Lou didn't actually win, that she just spent her own money to buy a bunch of tickets that turned out to be fake. Right. So they're out of a bunch of money. And so all of a sudden there's this wonderful opportunity that arises for maybe Marta wins some money so that they can buy some tickets and save the day. But And she does. She wins. She takes everybody to the cleaners <laughs> and wins and goes to cash out this huge pot that she's won from being such a good poker player, right? Looks like everything's going to be wonderful, right? Of course it can't be because the movie's not over. <laughs> we find out that it's a charity poker game so she can't take any of the money with her. Yes. And of course it's also worth pointing out who the other players are. Among others, there's Billy Porter, who plays a character named Gugu, mm-hmm. and my longtime favorite, Patton Oswalt, who plays the character that Mora dubs Brisket. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's. And there's the whole lead up to this scene where Mora thinks she's in like an eyes wide shut situation mm-hmm. and like puts on this half mask like you would see in a masquerade ball. It's. It's just, and of course, you know, so that makes her seem like she's supposed to be infiltrating this high stakes poker game. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just, it's sublimely ridiculous, but in a way that really works. Yes. I loved everything about it. And if I had a third, third sort of favorite scene, it's when Sally Field's character is like lusting after that young man, like in his, she's commenting mm-hmm. on his physique and all this yes. other stuff. That's also really, really, really <laughs> funny. So, you know, obviously, as it turns out, you know, they're, at the game, everything's a counterfeit. They're sort of panicking about what to do. They're all sort of acknowledging that they're going to be there for Louis if she does have cancer again. And then, of course, the Deus Ex Machina, or should I say, the Harry Hamlin Ex Machina, mm-hmm. who plays this, you know, former football player named um, Dan. I love how everyone just has first names. Mm-hmm. Like, sort of swoops that has already established a relationship of some sort with Jane Fonda's character. Mm-hmm. Suddenly swoops in and whisks them away to his box and then things go really wild because then they sort of break into the control center and are giving Tom Brady and the rest of the players all this advice and so it's all very silly and ridiculous mm-hmm. and they end up saving the day. Of course. And as you say, it's very sitcom but I that's what I really appreciated mm. about those moments. And I love how the movie actually played it up for a bit of earnestness at that point. Uh, when we talk about other kinds of things with different kinds of casts, especially casts with the young people, I talk about how I love the fact that they'll lean into the irony and not mm-hmm. be very sincere about anything at all. I like that there is that moment of sincerity when Lou gets on the, to the speaker and is talking to Tom Brady uh, when they get into the coach's booth and, and she actually gives him this speech that he finds very encouraging. Mm-hmm. And they actually play that moment straight. And I really right. like that. I like that it felt touching there. Yeah. And I don't know that I would have with a, a different cast 
in a different movie, I probably would have hated the fact right. that it got sincere at that moment, but I loved it here. Well, see, you know, to again, draw this back to the Golden Girls, I think one of the things that this film does very well is sort of pivoting from moments of sincerity to hilarity. Mm-hmm. And it's not every TV show or movie that can do that very effectively. And I think, in a, as you say, with a less talented cast, that would not work. But because Lily Tomlin in particular is very good at like conveying sincerity, but then pivoting to a moment of, you know, ridiculousness. We see it all the time in Grace and Frankie. I think that that's what makes it work so effectively. Mm-hmm. So speaking of which, I wanted to talk about the cancer storyline because that sort of lurks in the background. And we, I think we as viewers are meant to sense that something is up because we know that she has a set of tests that have come that she hasn't opened yet because of her conversation with her daughter, who of course has to be played by who? Who? <laughs> so Sarah Gilbert plays her daughter and it's always fun to see her even though she doesn't really have much to do she has like a minute of mm-hmm. screen time but I as you know someone who's both of my parents have you know are cancer survivors like that's one of the moments that I think worked very well and I think that really captures you know a really profound sense of how how afraid you can be not knowing exactly what's going to happen exactly and also, one last cast note. Thank goodness that Glenn Turman actually survives this movie. Yes. You know, because almost everything else I've seen him in in recent years, he's ended up dying. <laughs> so it's really kind of nice because he died in Fargo. He dies in mm-hmm. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So it's yeah. like, thank God Glenn Turman finally gets a role in which he can survive. He survives, and yeah. Which gets to have a, relation, or a possible romance with Rita Moreno. Mm, so, of course. You know, how could you go wrong there? Exactly. And then, of course, before we talk about some other stuff that's going to be a little bit more Golden Girls related for this. Uh, we had to talk about Marshawn Lynch. Apparently, between this and our other work, we're just kind of studying the filmography of Marshawn Lynch. We are, yes. So, maybe we should just do that. Maybe we should just make another podcast. Yes, the Marshawn Lynch podcast. <laughs> yes. And of course, you know, it also goes without saying that we have a, a dance moment, because of course it's Rita Moreno. If you're mm. going to have Rita Moreno, even a 91-year-old Rita Moreno, you're going to have a moment when they dance, which they do, because mm-hmm. they have to prove. Because <laughs> yes. they get into the game at first because Gugu's like, is like, well, I'm Gaga's choreographer, mm-hmm. so I'll get you in. Mm-hmm. And then they have to try to convince the security guards that they can, in fact, dance. Yes. And so it's it's very it's a very cute moment. Mm-hmm. It's really, I think, very amusing. Yes, and I love how all of the act because the pretense is that he's got claiming that these old ladies are his backup dancers <laughs> for the halftime performance. And of course, the real dancers are there, and they absolutely embrace this moment. They just bring these old ladies in with them and do the dance with this fake dance that they're just making up on the spot so that it's easy enough for them the real dancers join into yep. and make it a wonderful welcoming moment <laughs> I was disappointed we didn't get a cameo from Gaga herself but mm-hmm. we can't have everything exactly that would have doubled the cost of the movie right so you know of course in the end there's a very brief moment where it may seem as if um, Lou has passed away but then of course she hasn't mm-hmm. and I liked that they had that very brief you know way that these comedies do of having a fake out mm-hmm. when he, even though we in the audience know that we're not going to see her die off screen exactly and so there's you know I think the fact that this is based on a true story is also really quite touching and I think you know it's just kind of nice to see these four women together idolizing Tom Brady like it's just it's just delightful so I want to just you know to, to bring this to the Golden Girls because you know much as I love this movie we are a Golden Girls podcast mm-hmm. at least the last time I checked we were and I think that it's worth 
pointing out that, you know, even though this movie doesn't make sort of grand sweeping statements, it's not a fierce feminist text in the way that we might have expected. There is something I still think very profoundly powerful about the idea of older women being able to have agency and mm-hmm. like being able to move through the world through sp- like cinematic space. Yeah. I still think that there's something really powerful about that, given the extent to which even now a lot of women, older women actresses are often like shunted to the side. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's like they're they're not invisible. <laughs> right. It's like and I like that this movie I like that this movie makes this point all the way through by having these women be such a part of life. Mhm. They aren't just sort of old ladies that have been sort of put off in a corner somewhere and forgotten about. Right. You know, they're still very much active. Mhm living their lives doing things and i think that that's so important because that's so contrary i think to the image mm-hmm. of what life must get like when you get to be that age especially when you get to be as old as someone like Mora, who right. is played by rita moraine who's over 90 right that the idea that you're still getting out and going and doing things participating in activities that that's just that you have a life just like younger people do yep and so I think that's why that makes Maura's story so interesting because, you know, she does live in a retirement home and at one point early in the film, like she's fallen asleep. And so they, the staff at the home won't let her leave. Mm-hmm. So then the three remaining women have to sort of like scheme mm-hmm. a way of getting out. Of course, there's the classic Pat Sajak is signing autographs in the, the yes. lobby <laughs> joke, which I think was also just perfect. I, I love how Pat Sajak has been the sort of go to along with Alex Trebek before his passing, like, I love how these game show hosts are sort of emblematic of old lady dumb mm-hmm. from like the eighties to now. Exactly. Like this joke would have played this be- joke would have played Because it's the same ladies. Right. It's the same this ladies joke would have played just as well in the eighties as it would have played today in twenty twenty three. So I think that's really stunning. Exactly. But it's also like, you know, the fact of it is is that these women are actually being active in breaking their friend out of the retirement home, much mm-hmm. like Sophia does with Lillian, although mm-hmm. they don't have to pretend to be Sophia Hawkins, but, exactly. But I, which I, would have been awesome if they had. I know it would, it would have been. You know that would have been the the icing on the cake. But I do think that you know that's part of why I enjoy this movie is getting to see old broads doing things. Like mm-hmm. getting to have capers and adventures is really fun to watch. Yes, and I and I appreciate the fact that you know as you were saying in the pregame that like. It's not just that they're doing things, but that their space is not just removed from the world. Like, exactly. They are very much of the world, both in terms of the Super Bowl, but also just in general. Exactly. It isn't just, yes, the old people will run out in droves to see Pat Sajak in his non-existent appearance <laughs> for signing autographs at the home. They're, because of course, that's part of life. Old people like old people things. Sure, that's fine. But they don't only... Right. Like old people things. They're also still living in the current day world. Right. And I love that the show or the movie reveals that by having them be such avid football fans and being willing to sort of go out and it's important to them to actually go to the game and all of that stuff to participate and not just kind of sit in the chair in the corner <laughs> and and watch life kind of go by. Yep. And I mean, relatedly, and, you know, this sort of draws it into the... Because the Golden Girls does this too. Like, I mean, for all that, you know, a lot of critics, early f- critics sort of, in the scholarly bent would say that the golden girls were sort of isolated from the world. That's not true. Like they're always doing something mm-hmm. like they're going to the theater. They're, you know, they're going to Madonna concerts, they're going to Madonna concerts. They're protesting dolphin cruelty, like not cruelty of dolphins, mm-hmm. but cruelty mm-hmm. to dolphins. Although mm-hmm. Sophia has a game boy. She does have a game. boy. 
<laughs> so I appreciate that. And that's what, you know, I think that makes 80 for Brady such a natural connection to the Golden Girls. Because mm-hmm. I think that it really sort of highlights that. What also highlights it, though, is the power of female friendship. Because yes. I think that so often, both in real life, but also in sort of culture, women are pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. And we don't get as many visions of powerful female friendship as we probably should. And so it's nice to see this film where we don't see them spatting. We don't see them like competing for the same man. They're just a group of four older women who share a profound bond with each other, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes sleep together. Yeah. Like, <laughs> And I love that when there's conflict, the, the pseudo conflict before the realization of the possibility of lose cancer returning serving as a real plot point before that there's the gambit with the tickets and do they get lost and all that and i love that that's like the basis of any sort of conflict right. that might be there would be you know did one of them misplace the tickets as opposed to something about a romantic partner or some deep-seated conflict that's been there the whole time i've always resented something about you it's not that kind of bullshit yep. it's like damn it i want to see the game Yes. Anything that interferes with me seeing the game is going to be a problem. Yep. I love that they're so focused on that. See, if they had, say, if these women had watched Grab That Dough, they would have known to put the tickets in their bra. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where you put your, you know, valuable tickets. You don't right. put them in your purse. You know, because you just can't trust the purse. <laughs> or in your strap-on, as she kept calling it. <laughs> I very nearly did forget the strap-on joke. So, <laughs> Betty keeps insisting that her fanny pack is a strap-on. Mm-hmm. Because... It's she's not putting it on her fan. Yeah, she's it's wearing just, the strap across her. It's like, like yes. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit as a sort of like as we edge up toward the conclusion. Why is four such a perfect number for friend, female friendship in shows? Because you see it again. We see it obviously in the Golden Girls. We see it in Designing Women. We see it in Hot in Cleveland. We see it in Sex in the City. We mm-hmm. see it in Eighty for Brady. Mm-hmm. Like it's either two or four. Yeah, it's like pairings work with like because of Lucy and Ethel. We can take it back to that. Right. dynamic there and then uh, and then of course uh mary and rhoda right we have them in a bit later on but then you're right i think that for an for an ensemble show as opposed to a pairing four seems to work well i i don't know that i've ever been able to really figure out why and it's because i've been struggling to think of examples that don't end up with that number and the only thing that i can think of where the numbers have been a little bit more flexible are for long-running shows for things like alice because it was on for so long and the number of different women that worked at the Mm -hmm. diner you know there was that uh but of course mel himself was always such a big fixture of that show that they were always sort of pivoted around him yeah and then there was the brief run show uh it's a living that was the group of the women that ran the nightclub that top floor of this hotel uh and so that was a bigger than four sort of ensemble of women but again it had the same problem that more than four i think it's harder for everybody to 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 participate right it's harder to find ways to get everybody sort of equally involved when it's more than four right and i mean even something like and just like that which is the sequel series to sex of the city has Mm -hmm. always been conspicuous because samantha's not there Mm -hmm. so i think that part of it i think that if you had three it feels like two plus one. Exactly. But I think four is the magic number because it it's like, two, you know, it's two pairings or, you know, there's enough for each character to be able to do mm-hmm. that they don't necessarily feel like they're competing with each other. Exactly. Uh, or and But it also, like, doesn't have that third wheel phenomenon that we might see otherwise. Exactly. And I do think that given the history of uh, showing women sort of competing with one another or being in conflict, I think the two-in-one dynamic is also a little bit harder to pull off because I think it tends to naturally fall into mm-hmm. that trap of well 
the two of us are feuding, so you have to take a side. Right. It's like when there are four, two can be feuding and the other two can just sort of opt out. Yep. Or they could be focused on a different thing yep. that keeps them away from the other thing. Because mm-hmm. the Golden Girls did that a lot. There was right. plenty of conflict that came up between girls, but that four-person dynamic helped smooth it over. Yep, absolutely. So I guess, you know, what we would say is that 80 for Brady is, I think, designed for Golden Girls audiences. Mm-hmm. Both because of the four-woman dynamic, but also because it is very much the kind of thing that the Golden Girls was so skilled at. Except in a feature film length, which I think is why I loved it so much. Yep. So if you're a fan of the OK Petunias, if you're a fan of the Golden Girls, then we could not recommend 80 for Brady highly enough because it is really quite a fun film with some pretty subtle feminist messages underneath there as well. Yep. All right, well, that seems like a good place to end for this week. So for the OK Petunias, I am TJ. And I'm Aaron. And we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.